So open your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 10. I think we're going to finish Hebrews chapter 10 today. Um, we did the first 25 verses last week, and we'll do the second half this week, this morning, together. So just keep that in mind as we go through it, and we'll go back through some of what we went through last week. But as we look at Hebrews chapter 10 in our section this morning, starting in verse 26, our main idea for today is concerning believers. And so this message overall is mainly for believers, but there still is truth for all to hear and all to gather. And so if you're a believer this morning, it is especially important for all of us to hear what this author is saying to us and what we can gather from it. And so this morning, the the big idea is believers who intentionally sin forsake blessing and invoke judgment. Believers who intentionally sin forget blessing and invite judgment. And so as we look at Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26 this morning, we'll see that, and we'll go in reverse order of what I just mentioned in judgment and blessing. Let's read verses 26 through the end of the chapter, through 39, and then we'll go back and begin to talk about it. Hebrews 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? And has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days, when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay." But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is a difficult passage. Um, Actually, when we were looking to move to Abingdon, this was the first passage, and and not all the passage, um, I think it was 32 through 39 what I preached, but this is actually the first passage I preached in Abingdon. Um, And so looking back on that, it will look a little bit different than what I had said back then. And even then I actually had to preach the passage twice in the same morning um, because the church had two services. And it was really difficult because I felt like I'd already said what I needed to say. And so then when I have to repeat myself, you know, it's kind of like when you have to repeat yourself to your kids, you get a little bit more frustrated and, you know, a little bit more anger and um, a little less grace comes out the second time around. And so it was quite an interesting experience. But I'm, I'm happy and glad that we're able to look at this together 
um, in a new way, and in a way that as we've been walking through the book of Hebrews, we can see some themes that we've already seen. And so, again, back to our main point, and we start off with believers who intentionally sin, forsake blessing, and invoke judgment. And so we're starting with that invocation of judgment, that bringing on of judgment, asking for judgment. Look back at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. For if we go on sinning deliberately, I think it's pretty clear what he's talking about. Like you actually mean to sin. You know what is the right thing to do and you don't do it. Or you're supposed to refrain from doing something and you know, you don't do it. Or you're supposed to do something and you don't do it. So you can omit or you can commit. It's something where you know what the sin is and you still say, I don't care. This is something that is not new in the Bible. This is not an idea that is new. Now, let's take this verse particularly and walk through it a little bit more than we will the other verses. And notice a couple things. So the end of the verse For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So where have we heard this before? Well, we heard it last week in chapter 10, verse 18. Look at it there in your text. Where there is forgiveness of these, where there is forgiveness of sins, where God no longer remembers your sins. There, as far as the east is from the west, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offerings for sin. And we talked about this last week. And when we talked about it last week, We talked about the fact that when you have been forgiven of your sins, when you have been forgiven of your sin, when you acknowledge, when you understand that Jesus was the only one who could save you from your sin, there's nothing now more that you can do to keep yourself or to put yourself right with God. Only Jesus can put you right with God. And we talked about this last week. And so there is no longer an offering that you can do, an offering that you can give that puts you back into right relationship with God. Jesus and his once and for all sacrifice was the only thing that could make you right with God and the only thing that keeps you right with God. We talked about this last week. And so this week, as we look again at this same idea, there is no longer any offering for sin. There is the idea that we find in the Old Testament In the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 15, you don't have to turn there, but I will. The idea that you cannot offer a sacrifice for a sin that has been done intentionally, a sin that has been done deliberately. Numbers 15, I'm going to read starting in verse 27, if you want to mark that down. Numbers 15, verses 27 through 36 is what I'm going to read. Starts saying this, If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake. Notice, unintentional, a mistake. He didn't mean to do it, but then after the fact you found out, oh, I did what was wrong. And so there is an offering available for you to do in the old covenant to help pay for that, to cover that, to make atonement for that. For the person who makes a mistake, when he sins unintentionally, to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, 
and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. That idea of someone doing something with a high hand, that means you are proud. It means you know what is supposed to happen and what is supposed to happen does not happen because you don't care, because you think it's all right. You think, ah, God doesn't really care that much about this moment. And what is scary is the verses and the example that follow there in Numbers 15, starting in verse 32. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Now, I mean, he's not just committed murder, okay? He's not just cheated on his wife. He has simply picked up sticks on the Sabbath day, all right? Now, this seems like a very insignificant and small thing. He picked up sticks. But what happens to him? Verse 33, And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, The man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. Whoa! Ouch! That's pretty harsh, right? But the idea is, the example that immediately follows, we read in Numbers 15, verses 27 through 31, the idea of unintentional versus intentional, deliberate versus not deliberate, a mistake versus, man, I meant to do that full throttle knowing what was right and what was wrong. That's a harsh reality. But this guy apparently knew what was right and he didn't do it. He sinned intentionally. He knew that on the Sabbath day they were supposed to rest, not do any work. And apparently for him, this picking up of sticks was work. And so he defied God's law that was clearly given. One of the clear commandments, even if you just went to those 10 commandments, one of those was clearly defied. He deliberately sinned. He deliberately went against what he should have done. Exodus 31, as Moses is giving the law to the people, verses 14 through 15. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. So the people, Moses, Aaron, and the people... They simply followed what they were told to do from God because God had made it clear, this is my law, this is what a sin is against my law, and this is the consequence therein of what happens when you don't pay attention to it. God is serious about holiness. God is serious about sin. He cares about what you do. And this is a frightening truth, but it is also a humbling and wonderful truth because he does care about us and he has made known to us how he desires for us to live. He's not left us in the dark and he cares about 
what he has said. He hasn't just said it flippantly and said, well, if you want to do this, then great, fine, okay, but if not, well, it doesn't really matter. No, we know that God is a serious God. We know that God is a holy God because he keeps his standards. He has standards, number one, and number two, he keeps them. He cares. He has rules. He can be known, and he can be known clearly because he has made himself clearly known through his word, and he has made his expectation known through his word. And we know one thing as we looked at that passage, (coughs) excuse me, as we looked at that passage in Numbers 15, one thing that we saw, or maybe that we didn't see, was the fact that it was never mentioned whether or not this guy who picked up sticks was saved or not. All we know is that he was among the people of God. He was a child of God as far as it had been told to us. And it never says that he burned in hell forever. It never says that he was cut off, cut off from his people for eternity, but rather cut off from God's people, literally put to death then and there. There was, and we've mentioned this before, an immediate and a temporal in that time right then judgment that was going to happen for him. But that judgment that happened in that moment is not necessarily an eternal judgment. And so as we look at this passage and walk through it and talk through the rest of it, we have got to realize that this author in Hebrews chapter 10, as he has been for the first 10 chapters, and as I've said many times, he is writing to Christians He is speaking to Christians. He is speaking to brothers. Look at our passage in Hebrews 10 and see this. Look at verse 19, the text right before ours. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. That means the blood of Jesus has covered their sins. They have confidence to enter the holy places. They have now access to God through Christ. They are brothers. They're Christians. And look at our text in verse 26. For if we, there is a possibility that this author can sin deliberately and can expose himself to the consequences that he himself is writing about. For if we, he includes himself with the people he's writing to. And he can only do that if they are Christians. They are Christians that he's writing to. Maybe you still don't believe me. Look at verse look at the rest of verse 26 there. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, they have received it. It's not just that the, the gift has been offered, it's that the gift has been received. Look at verse 29 in our text. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant? by which he was sanctified. Now, if you were with us last week, you remember we went through this. We looked at it in verses 10 and in verses 14. Look at verse 10 in chapter 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified. That is basically the exact same thing as what he says there in verse 29 in our text, by which he was sanctified. You have been made perfect, Once and for all, 
through the body, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14 of chapter 10. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So you have been sanctified completely, and yet you still are being sanctified all the time. You still are being more and more made into the image of Christ as you live according to the law that God has put before you. But you have once and for all been perfected. You have been sanctified. As you continue to realize that in your heart and in your mind and in your life. And so this is the language that he uses to make it clear that he is talking to Christians. So he is talking about a judgment that can be expected if we sin deliberately as Christians. Believers who intentionally sin forsake blessing and invoke judgment. This is written to Christians and it's written as a warning to Christians that we can invite the judgment of God upon our lives if we sin deliberately. There's a quote from David Allen. It says, New covenant believers, Christians, cannot presume upon the salvation brought to them in Christ to cause God to overlook their willful disobedience. We cannot suppose that Jesus Christ died for our sins after the fact that we know we should not have committed, yet still with a high hand, with a proud heart said, I don't care, I'm still going to commit it. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin for that. Now, when I say that, I want to clearly point out the fact that as this is being written to Christians, this does not mean that you can lose your salvation. Again, I pointed out in Numbers 15, this never said that that man who picked up sticks on the Sabbath was forever cut off from the people of God. He was not for eternity left out of the kingdom of God. Simply, in that moment, he chose clearly what was wrong to do. And so God, in keeping his name holy, in keeping his people holy, said, you are set apart, and so you've got to set that guy apart and kill him because he is not the image. He is not the perspective that I want to portray to my people and to the people around. It is a serious thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And that means judgment for believers. We will be judged. Um, this was our book of the month for May. Jesus continued, and I'm going to read a, a clip of it from page 200. This idea of willful sin and why it's so important that we recognize how important it is to God and why it's included here in Hebrews 10. Page 201 says, Unconfessed, secret, or willful sin deeply grieves the Holy Spirit of God. And where it is cherished, the Spirit will not be present. Nothing quenches the fire of the Holy Spirit faster than unconfessed sin. He goes on. Again, let me repeat this. Nothing repels the Spirit of God faster than willful, unconfessed sin. Sin put Jesus, whom the Holy Spirit cherishes, on the cross. And that Spirit cannot dwell where people treat lightly what destroyed God's Son. Sin extinguishes the presence of the Holy Spirit like water, does a flame. Now he's writing that in the midst of a chapter on revival. 
and how if we have sin in our hearts and sin in our lives and sin in our midst, how can we expect God to bless us? How can we expect God to bring revival? And actually, to the contrary, when we confess sin, when we are open and say, I know I've sinned and I don't want to do that anymore. I know what I've done what is wrong and I don't want to keep doing that thing. You confess it and you don't just confess it to God, but you confess it to one another. Now, we didn't highlight the last couple of verses of our text last week, but I want to do that now because the idea of confessing our sin can only happen when you meet together with the other people of God. And the Spirit, He so loves to be in the midst of a people who recognize how unholy they are, yet still look to how holy God is and how merciful He is and how gracious He is toward us in Christ and how He seeks to, as we confess sin, move in His Spirit in those spots, in those places where there is sin He wishes, He wants, He puts His Spirit in when we confess those things. And we can only do that if we draw near to Him. We can only do that if we hold on to our confession. We can only do that if we consider how to spur each other on toward love and good deeds together. I'm just going to read verses 19 through 25 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, what are we encouraging each other other to do? Why are we meeting together? What should happen in our midst whenever we are together and meeting and talking? We should be looking at God's Word. And as we look at God's Word, we see how holy He is. But we don't just see how holy He is. We see how unholy we are. And so it puts us in a position where we can confess our sin where we can recognize maybe sometimes for the first time that, oh, I didn't even know that I was sinning in that moment. I didn't know I was supposed to treat my wife in that way, and I haven't been treating her that way. I I didn't know I was supposed to be patient with my kids, and I haven't been patient with my kids. And, And you confess those sins, or sometimes maybe you have been harboring a pet sin. Maybe we have something in our hearts and our lives that we haven't that that we shouldn't have been doing, but we have been doing, and we've been doing it for some time. In those moments when we meet together, when we allow God's Word to actually look into our hearts, when we allow His Word to search in us to the point of dividing the bone and the marrow, as He talked about in Hebrews 4, how the Word of God is living and active and how it pierces us, how it is like a torpedo right into our hearts, exposing the weaknesses, exposing the unholiness, exposing the sin in our hearts, in our minds, in our tongues. We have the opportunity as we meet together to encourage one another by confessing sin and realizing that there is grace and forgiveness. There is mercy and healing available through Jesus Christ, 
and through nothing else. And we encourage each other to look toward God, the only one who has done something about our sin and the only one who can do something about our sin. And so we shouldn't neglect to meet together because this is how we oftentimes are confronted with the sin in our hearts. And in those times, we have an opportunity to confess. We have an opportunity to learn, to grow. And so we can't neglect to meet together. I mean, so what do you think he's talking about in verse 26 then when he goes, for if we go on sinning deliberately, what, what sort of sins do you think he's talking about? Well, I think he's talking about what, what he, maybe he's just mentioned. For if we, if we neglect to draw near to Christ because our hearts aren't sprinkled clean, because our consciences are dirty, we neglect to meet together as we've been told to do, as we've been expected to do. When, when we commit some of these sins, and we can list many other ones, but just in the context here, this is what he's talking about. When we neglect to meet together, we forsake the opportunity to be a blessing to one another, which leads us to that second point and our main point. Believers who intentionally sin forsake blessing and invoke judgment. They forsake blessing on others by not being able to be a blessing to others because of their sin, but then they also forsake the blessing that they are to receive. Look in verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. In case you were wondering whether or not he's talking about Christians, just that last verse in verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Sometimes when we talk about judgment, when we look at a passage like this, there can be so much of a lack of hope. You know, all that we can expect then is judgment. You know, all you've been talking about is God killing people for simply picking up sticks. And, and, we, and our minds can be left there in, in the idea that our God is only a God of wrath or our God is only a God of judgment. Our God is only a God who cares about keeping, you know, being a stickler to the rules like that foul English teacher that we had in high school, you know, and made us do everything all proper like and it was really annoying, right? But no, this is, this is not who God is. God is gracious. He's merciful. He has promised us a reward. That's what he mentions there in those verses 32 through 36. But sometimes we do experience struggles. We do experience hardships. Sometimes we're publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes we're simply just associated, we're just partners with those who have been afflicted in those ways. 
But we have, as we've continued, not neglecting to meet together, but instead meeting together regularly, we've been able to be a blessing to those around us. And so whenever we sin intentionally, we neglect that opportunity because typically what happens is when we sin, we get ashamed. There's guilt that grows in us. And when that shame and guilt comes to our minds and is apparent in our hearts, oftentimes as humans, the first thing that we are prone to do is is to hide, is to retract, is to go back into our shell and to go back into the safety of our own little bubble and, and go back to the whole idea of, you know, woe is me and I'm not good enough. And so if I'm not good enough, then I can't be a blessing to other people. And if I've sinned, then, then I've got no right. I, I've got no, no ground to stand on next to or, or beside or behind or in front of other people. And, and so we are tempted when there is sin in our life to forsake not only receiving the blessing, but being a blessing. And, and so we hide, we, we, we shrivel back, we, we say, I, I don't deserve to be here, I, I don't deserve to be doing this, I, these other people aren't going to benefit from me. And, and what happens is we continue to compound the problem by staying within ourselves, by not allowing the Word of God to be spoken to us as we gather together, by not allowing other people to encourage us in the Word. And so there, there's a, sometimes a, a spiraling a funneling effect where, where we just keep going down and down and down. And that sin continues to work its way deeper and deeper into our hearts and into our lives. And at a certain point, we might become callous to it. And we've talked about this as we've looked at the book of Hebrews. We can become callous to our sin. We can become callous to the ways in which we have not been following after God. The people in the Old Testament, God's people... We're known for this. Over and over again, they failed. They neglected to seek after God, to follow after God. They knew what was the right thing to do, and they didn't do it. Time after time after time. And what they received was judgment. And somehow, some way, they still remained God's people. And so the difficult truth that I have to say this morning is that you can be a Christian and you can be completely backslidden. You can be a Christian and you can be completely backslidden, and yet you can still be a Christian. It's possible, according to this text, according to the rest of the book of Hebrews, if you are saved, you will be kept. And sometimes we will experience judgment. Now, we've seen these phrases. We, look, we, we saw it last week, but we didn't look at it too much. And just in case we're still not sure, look back at verse 28 of our text. And I feel it necessary to, to make this point. And I don't want to make this point to scare us into submission, to scare us into holiness, to scare us into being obedient people. But I want us to see 
how serious God is about following after him. Verses 28 and 29. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. We saw that. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Now that idea of the blood of the covenant is what I mentioned. We, we looked at it in our text last week. We didn't talk about it much. That idea of the blood of the covenant, where have you heard that phrase before outside of Hebrews? Well, one of the places you'll hear that is in Exodus 24, the, as, as Moses sprinkled the people with the blood of the covenant, the old covenant. You'll find that. Exodus 24, verse 8. Then Matthew 26, as Jesus is giving his disciples the Last Supper, how does he explain what is happening there? Matthew 26, in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. All right, now fast forward a little bit, and Paul's writing to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Oftentimes this is the passage that is used whenever we partake of the Lord's Supper together. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse We'll start in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you. Yet the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, these are the verses, these upcoming verses are the ones that we have to pay attention to, and I pray that you'll see the correlation between our text in Hebrews 10 and what's happening here in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. What Paul is saying there in 1 Corinthians 11 is that God has brought judgment upon people who have sin in their lives and so therefore take the Lord's Supper in vain and He has caused them to become sick, to become weak, to become ill. And even some have died. How have they died? They've died because God Himself has brought judgment on them. This is happening for Christians. Christians have been judged by God and they have received the consequences 
of their deliberate sin. God is serious about sin. And He's serious about sin, not just in the lives of those who have heard the gospel presentation and have forsaken it, not just those who've never heard. God is serious about sin, especially in the lives of His people. And all of us, we, the writer, includes himself, I include myself, if we deliberately sin, we have to expect judgment. And we have to expect that we will forsake blessing. So how can we keep from sinning intentionally? If we've been giving this warning, if we've been given this idea that judgment awaits us, what then should we do? How then should we live? We're tempted to say, I just need to try harder. We're tempted to say, I just need to do better. And how he ends our passage in Hebrews 10 is how we'll pick it up next week again and how we need to continue to pick it up every moment of every day. Lord, I need you every hour. And so how are we supposed to live then? Verse 38 of our text in Hebrews 10. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. How can we keep from sinning intentionally? Well, we can keep from sinning intentionally by living by faith. It's not just to do harder. It's not just to try better. It's not just a more grit is required. Your knuckles aren't wide enough yet. You've got to do all of these things to put yourself back right with God. It's simply to recognize that we have been saved only by faith and that we can only live then by faith. And so how do we persevere? We persevere through faith. We're brought into the kingdom by faith. We're kept in the kingdom by faith. And God is faithful. God is faithful. And He desires from us faith. We don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to do all of these things to make it clear that now I'm a child of God. Just live by faith. And that still is a hard thing to do because it's so vague in general. But trust that God is who He says He is. Trust that God does care about His own people. Trust that God does care for you and that He hasn't left you to keep from sinning all by your own power, but He has given you His Spirit. He has given His Spirit to you so that you can have within you at all times someone speaking to your heart, sometimes quite softly and gently, 
This is the way you should go. Walk in it. He has put his law on our hearts. That's why it's so important and why he, he quoted from Jeremiah 31 twice. We've seen in the last few weeks. Verse 16 of chapter 10. This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So when you are tempted to recoil back and to go back into your bubble because there is shame and guilt when you know that there has been sin in your life, recognize that God is faithful, that he is there to forgive you, and that he is serious about sin. Believers who intentionally sin forsake blessing and invoke judgment. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Are you a believer today and can you say that for yourself? I'm not one of those who is going to intentionally sin. But I'm one who loves God and wants to follow Him with my whole heart and whole mind. Who wants to live by faith. I pray that that's true for you. And if you're not a Christian this morning, we serve a loving and living God who has cared about us so much that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sin that we couldn't pay. He lived the life that we couldn't live and died the death that we deserved so that we could have the opportunity to be forgiven once and for all forever and to be right with Him. He offers that to you this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank You for how you have offered salvation to us, how you have given us the blessing of being sanctified, of being made perfect. But God, we pray that as we know that we are perfect, as we know that we are yours as Christians, that we would not neglect the fact that we are still continuing to understand more and more, to live out more and more, what it is to be sanctified, how you are making us more and more holy. And so I pray that for the sins that we have in our hearts and in our lives, expose those. Help us to see those things clearly. And when we have seen those things clearly and when we have still chosen to do what's wrong, God, help us by faith through your spirit, to overcome those things. Help us as we meet together to encourage one another, to spur each other on toward love and good deeds, that we would see the sin in each other's lives and implore one another to change, implore one another to turn back, implore one another to look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. God, would we be a church who does this one with another, as we continue to meet together, help us to be these people so that we can receive your blessing, so that we can be a blessing, so that we don't have to fear judgment, but that we know we have a clean conscience 
and that we live before you and before others with a pure heart. So God, we pray for pure hearts. We pray for clean consciences. We pray that we would live by faith. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.